0: This month on IQ, we have something slightly different for you. At the beginning of November, we recorded an episode of the podcast in front of an audience at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Here's an edited version of our first LSE IQ live. For more episodes of IQ and to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud, please visit lse.ac.uk forward slash IQ or search for LSEIQ in your favourite podcast app. Welcome to this recording of LSEIQ. I'm Sue Windybank and this is my colleague Joe Bale. We're both co-producers of the LSEIQ podcast, the podcast where we ask leading social scientists and other experts to answer an intelligent question about economics, politics, or society. We also have our LSEIQ colleagues here tonight with us, Tom Williams, James Ratti hiding behind the lectern there, and Ollie Johnson who will be recording and producing the podcast for us. This event is part of the Economic and Social Research Council's Festival of
1: Social Science. Joe, Hello. Um, we have three distinguished LSE academics with us tonight. Dr Rebecca Elliott is an assistant professor in LSE's Department of Sociology. She's particularly interested in how the environmental impacts of climate change are confronted as economic problems. She also focuses on green consumption. Professor Ian Gough is a visiting professor at CASE, LSE's Centre for the Analysis of Social Exclusion. He's also an associate at the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment at LSE. For the last decade, he has been researching the social dimensions of climate change. He is the author of a recently published book, Heat, Greed and Human Need, Climate Change, Capitalism and Sustainable Wellbeing. Dr. Rudolfo Lever is a fellow in LSE's Department of Media and Communications. His current research investigates the effects of mass media on attitudes to welfare policy and on pro social as opposed to antisocial behaviour. He also studies the effects of the internet on political participation. Economic growth has helped
0: millions out of poverty. The jobs it creates mean rising incomes and consumers who buy more. This drives further growth and higher living standards, including better health and education. Yet WWF, the World Wildlife Fund, has recently warned that exploding human consumption is the driving force behind unprecedented planetary change through increased demand for energy, land and water. Plastics and microplastics are filling our oceans and rivers and entering the food chain. The production of goods and services for household use is the most important cause of greenhouse gas emissions. The textile industry is responsible for depleting and polluting water resources and committing human rights abuses against its workers. It is also a major source of greenhouse gas emissions and three-fifths of all clothing produced ends up in incinerators or landfill within a year of being made. For this episode of LSEIQ we're asking can we afford our consumer society? Rebecca, you've done some of your research on green consumption. Many of us want to do our bit for the environment by buying these products, but they're quite expensive and sometimes some of the claims behind them are, we're not sure that they're you know, completely um, true. So who buys these green products and why?
2: Sure. So to answer this question, the first thing we have to do is be precise about what it is that we mean when we say green consumption. So what is green consumption? Most fundamentally, perhaps cynically, it's largely a marketing distinction. These are goods and services that are marketed as relatively environmentally friendly or sustainable. And purveyors of these goods and services will make these claims about their environmental friendliness using different strategies, different messaging, which means that these goods will appeal to different people and for different reasons. So in my research, I've argued that in order to understand who's buying these products, we have to be clear about what products we're talking about. Are we talking about recycled paper? Are we talking about electric vehicles? And in my research, I focus on the consumption of household goods, so things that are made from recycled materials that don't use chemicals or that decompose after they're used. And based on an analysis of US survey data, I've found that higher levels of education, being female, being a parent, and identifying as an environmentalist are all positive predictors. In other words, people with these characteristics are more likely to say yes, I'm interested in this kind of green consumption. So what are the implications of that? There are two. So the first is that interestingly, higher incomes did not significantly predict resonating with this kind of green consumption, which goes against some of our stereotypes about it actually, because I think there is this general sense that it is the more affluent who tend to participate in this, not just as a matter of virtue signaling, but as a way of status signaling. Oftentimes these goods are much more expensive than their conventional counterparts. Um, but household goods, like the ones tapped in in the survey that I looked at, don't really afford the opportunity to signal social status, right? So the, the plastic on the toilet roll might say it's, you know, bragging about its environmental friendliness, but you take that plastic off and it looks like any other toilet roll. Um, so given my findings, you know, what I conclude is that this is still about status. And education, which is a positive predictor, is very much about social status. But what I conclude is that status works a little bit more subconsciously, and implicitly than we typically think it does. So it's this, this kind of green consumption has more to do with the kind of cultivation and the discernment that comes with higher education. And the other implication is that green consumption of household goods seems to be, have something to do with being a mother and mothering. And it's associated with a certain conception of gender roles that locates responsibility for the welfare of the planet for current and future generations uh, in women, both in the home and more broadly. And so how seriously to take this? Um, you know, The merits of green consumption are vigorously debated. We should absolutely encourage the uh, innovation and energy efficient washing machines and recycled textiles and products that decompose. Um, but for those of us living kind of relatively rich lives in relatively rich places, I tend to come down on the side of the critics who've observed that the bigger, more important thing is to just consume less. So every act of consumption is an environmental act. Um, and there are ways to recycle and reuse that people have been engaging in, in a long, for a long time, but that's not necessarily recognized or valorized as what we would notice as green consumption.
0: So we just need to buy their
1: stuff. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, Rudy, you've conducted psychological (laughs) experiments about the effects of watching popular TV shows like Keeping Up With The Kardashians and The Apprentice, um, shows that glamorise the accumulation of wealth. Uh, What did they reveal, and what do you think are the wider implications?
3: Generally, these, uh, so these types of shows, right, they promote what are, um, I guess, considered kind of a, uh, conceptions of materialism. Now, I'm going to have to read from this, and that's just so that I can stay on tangent. And I'm sorry if this sounds overly scripted, but um, I just want to be concise and make sure that I don't say anything that will get me fired. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on a fixed term contract, so I have to be right here. <laughs> OK, so, uh, so I need to define materialism first, right, uh, which here refers to a set of values and attitudes that orient individuals to valorize, seek, be preoccupied with acquiring wealth, possessions, prestige, and status. Right? So, moreover, uh, by reality television, I'm thus only referring to reality based shows. Of course, we know that they're not reality, but you know, <laughs> um, that are replete with materialistic media messages, right? That is, media representations and endorsements of affluence, fame, image, status, interpersonal competition, and conspicuous consumption. So, specific examples include Keeping Up with the Kardashians, uh, The Apprentice. Made in Chelsea, all of these about wealthy people's lives uh, or sort of reality uh, talent shows like The X Factor, et cetera. So correspondingly, experimental psychology studies, including my own, have found that even momentary and subliminal exposure to um, uh, materialism-related images, such as pictures of money, for example, uh, and language, just words such as buy or consume or pictures of a dollar sign or pound sign, uh, can simultaneously trigger uh, antisocial responses and inhibit pro-sociality. Relatedly, developmental studies have linked the rise in the dissemination and consequent exposure to materialistic media messages over the past 30 years to generational increases in in self-interestedness and desires to be rich and famous, and decreases in empathy and communitarian orientations and concerns for the environment. One major explanation for all this is that materialism schema are tied to what are referred to as self-enhancement dispositions, uh, which when triggered by environmental cues, such as uh, media messages, stimuli, orient people towards non-generosity, envious sentiments and the attainment of status and possessions these dispositions are psychologically incompatible and in relative conflict with self-transcendence disposition uh, which focus on empathy altruism and communality. both self-transcendence and self-enhancement dispositions are believed to be innate human aspects but the ways and the extent to which these are represented abstracted and prioritized in people's minds as well as them behaviorally expressed are mostly shaped by sociocultural information therefore market societies such as our own. Uh, which endorse, reward, and communicate sociocultural representations of self-enhancement dispositions, substantially more so than, uh, uh, than self-transcendence uh, um, uh, dispositions, can generate a sort of, sort of developmental seesaw effect, where one set is developed more than the other. Uh, so hence, in tandem, all this research suggests that constant exposure to materialistic media messages, such as uh, through watching the types of television shows that I mentioned earlier, can subliminally cultivate and automatically activate people's selfishness and decrease their altruism and empathy. Of course, materialistic media messages and other mediums, such as magazines, films, right, uh, songs and radio, also contribute to this process. Uh, so I guess just of my findings and I guess my colleagues is that awash uh, sort of in a mass media sea of well fame and conspicuous consumption. Uh, an individual's concern for the well-being of others, the community or the environment may simply uh, get drowned out.
0: Thank you, Moody.
3: Yeah.
0: Ian, your background is in social policy. What does social policy have to do with tackling the environment, and environmental threats, and consumption? Why not leave it to the scientists and the economists?
4: The scientists and the economists. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, well, they are the two groups that tend to dominate the discussion of climate change and sustainability. And so one of the things I wanted to do in this book was to bring back um, all all the other social scientists. Um, and to see what they could uh, contribute. Um, they have to do with it because there's a there's a big problem of uh, inequality and big impacts on human well-being, and that's that's where it where it comes in. So sustainability, I mean I, I, I think we're all mainly concerned here with environmental sustainability. The planetary boundaries, uh, Rockstrom and Co at uh, Stockholm have identified nine. Um, Three of which are already being exceeded. One is climate change, another is biodiversity, and others are getting close. So we're talking about environmental limits which are being uh, broken through, Uh, and we'll we'll no doubt come back to that. But this is taking place in a very unequal world. The main driver of emissions uh, and carbon and greenhouse gases, which is my main area of study, um, is income. Doesn't matter whether you look between countries or within countries, within groups, always the higher your income, the higher the emissions and the carbon usage. So, um, and if you look at a world scale, uh, the top 10% of income in the world, which includes all of us here, I'm pretty sure, account for about 50% of um, total emissions and the bottom 50% of the world account for about 10% so that it's like a tree, the shape if you look at emissions by income um, so uh, and what's more uh, so the, the main group that are responsible for this in consumption terms is the rich um, and, and then that also means they're spending more, and more on, on luxuries or at least on comfort goods and, and less on uh, necessities, so they're crowding out necessities. Um, Gandhi said, "You know, there's plenty in the world for uh, human to meet human needs, but not to meet human greed." And the World Bank of all people came up with a, a nice example of this. They calculated that if um, the U.S. drivers of SUVs, there are forty-five million of them, um, swap their cars for average cars, then the emissions save would enable the whole world to be provided with electricity in other words the one and a half billion people in the world who go without electricity at the moment could have a modest amount of electricity within this emissions ceiling so um, that's that's sort of one example so and this is where then um, social justice comes in which is another important aspect of social policy but also of course of philosophy Um, and um, it's important then, when dealing, when thinking about climate change and, and addressing it, to bear in mind uh, the re- the need for justice on a world scale and the need for justice within countries too. You want to avoid carbon policies which uh, impact more on low income households, for example. Um, and the, I suppose the other the other way in which this ties in with social policy is through this idea of of human needs. Um, we're talking here about consumption, consumptions driven by wants, by people's preferences, uh, if they're backed by income, if they got the money to, to put them into operation. Um, so those are the two factors that matter, preferences and income. But needs provides uh, an alternative um, value, if you like, and metric, uh, common human needs, which apply to all people uh, across the world and into the future which is where intergenerational justice comes in. So um, I think social policy can contribute this idea of of common human needs uh, as another way of challenging um, wants and wants-driven consumption.
0: How easy is it to distinguish between human wants and human needs?
4: Oh, that's easy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Wants are wants, whatever people prefer. Uh, as I say, the usual way in economics to study them is how they're revealed in markets. Trouble with that is you've got to have money to to buy the goods to meet the ones. Needs are um, what's uh, necessary things to avoid harm and to enable participation uh, and the capacities to participate in in human societies. We say the basic needs are are participation health uh, and autonomy, and these in turn require certain things like food, I mean this isn't rocket science, you know, you need food, water, clothing, but also psychological needs such as security, a certain level of security in childhood. These are common to all peoples uh, and that's the way in which we, and others who use the term needs, would tend to identify them.
1: Thank you. Thanks Ian. Um, Let's move the discussion onto the idea of degrowth being part of the solution to climate change. I think Ian, it's something that you've you've, um, talked about in your your book. Can you explain what degrowth means and what you would say to economists and politicians who say we need growth um, for innovation to reduce the impact of climate change on our lives?
4: We need growth to to, to, uh, avoid climate change. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, the basic argument there is technology, that um, in a high-growth society, we, we are a high-technology society, we're a very clever species, and uh, we can find more and more ways of decoupling our consumption from our damage to the planet, basically. Um, decoupling is the key word. So we can continue to have growth, but we can cut down um, emissions and other damages. Uh, by being clever and, and developing the appropriate technology, my argument against that is uh, well, there's two arguments. The first is uh, it can't work; it cannot be enough um, because we have to we have to move to a zero carbon world by 2050 at the latest, which means a colossal decline <laughs> in emissions. And all the figures we've seen suggest that can't be done. You can easily do. Um, Energy, uh, you know, you can move to electricity and solar power and all the rest of it, but all the rest, uh, land and um, agriculture and housing, and it's much more difficult. So uh, I think it's it can't happen. So you need something else other than t- this decoupling, technological decoupling. And the second r- argument against it is that it, it's, uh, it can be unjust. It doesn't take into account the inequality I've talked about and the distribution of um, the the sacrifice, if you
1: like. Rebecca, would you like to comment, or Rudy?
2: Yeah, so this in some ways kind of follows up from uh, Ian's earlier description of his research. You know, and at at the outset, we heard a lot about the relationship between growth and uh, improved livelihoods, lengthened lives, improved well-being, reduced infant mortality, more jobs, all of these things. Um, And two points to make about that. The first is that you know, there's not this kind of direct relationship between economic growth and increases in well-being without any, anything mediating that relationship. So there are political institutions that regulate and distribute the benefits and burdens of that growth, and it creates winners and losers in the process. So with levels of inequality at kind of historic levels, as Ian mentioned, we know that even in the context of immense growth the spoils can go to a tiny fraction of the people. So it's never people in general who see these benefits, it's some people and not other people. And then the second point is that I think we can scrutinize the more fundamental question, perhaps, of whether it's worth winning. Um, So social science has shown us that even the people who are doing well, even the people who are capturing some of those benefits of growth, are not doing so well in terms of their overall well-being. Rates of depression have gone up for adults in the highest annual household income group. And what are the most common reasons for stress? Money and work. Uh, Youth in these families have higher levels of anxiety than inner city youth. They have higher substance abuse rates. They're at higher risk for psychological disturbance due to excessive pressures to achieve. So the winners uh, in in a growth-fueled system consume more, they work more, and they're miserable. Uh, So, you know, we may lose growth, we may have to lose growth, or the idea of growth, but in the process we could also lose some things that were perhaps never worth having to begin with.
3: Rudy? Yeah, I just want to sort of uh, build on both both of my colleagues have just said, and um, there's this old joke, I'm sure many people have heard it before, and it's often attributed to the economist um, Kenneth Building. Um, I'm not sure if he actually said it, but it's attributed to him. It goes up. Uh, anyone who believes in uh, indefinite growth in anything physical on a physically finite planet is either mad or an economist. And, <laughs> so, that said, economic growth is driven by several, uh, you know, complex factors. Many of which, many of which, lead to worse well-being and job losses. So, for example, in the U.S., the largest economy in the world, and, uh, the employment and total sales of the finance industry grew, grew from 10% of GDP in 1970 to 20% by 2010. The emphasis was no longer on making things, right? It was on making money for money, on gambling, basically. At the same time, the manufacturing industry fell from 30% of GDP in 1950 to 10% in 2010. Uh, This has led to a considerable decrease in what was once well-paid union-protected manufacturing jobs, in the automobile uh, in particular, for example. At the same time, the financial uh, uh, innovations, right, like mortgage-backed securities and credit default swaps, led to the 2008 global financial economic recession, uh, which in turn caused trillions uh, in losses in household wealth uh, and including savings. Uh, So Facebook has also contributed to GDP growth, but are arguably making society worse. (laughs) Apple has contributed to GDP growth. And while an argument can be made that the iPhone was at least initially a worthwhile invention, the almost annual release of a seemingly identical version of the phone just creates more e-waste to say nothing about the gross and criminal exploitation of Chinese workers. So moreover, in developing countries, for example, uh, natural disasters uh, like the recent sort of hurricanes uh, can at least in about third or fourth quarter generally lead to a boost in GDP through recovery spending. Right? Now, I'm only bringing up these examples just to highlight uh, how economic growth, at least as it's currently kind of uh, understood in terms of GDP, should not be held uh, as good in and of itself or valuable right? uh, or, or socially beneficial. But rather, it has to be examined within the context from where this growth comes from. Um, and relatedly, so many of the great innovations that have actually made things better, like penicillin or the internet, were state-funded and created in public universities. And that often gets forgotten, really annoyingly so. Interesting.
4: Can I just come in there? I think there's, there's another issue here, which is that I, I suppose the basic story in the, in the West, at any rate, of the last 100 years, is that um, yeah, a growth and, and capitalist economy has improved standards of living very considerably. Um, And uh, Rebecca mentioned one of the side effects there, and that doesn't necessarily translate into well-being. Another one is that this has been at the expense of uh, the well-being of future generations. It's an intergenerational issue here. We've squandered, in a sense, a lot of the resources of the planet, um, and and we have to now start thinking in intergenerational terms.
0: There is an idea that might be appealing to many of us that, that... if we work less, we'll earn less, um, but we'll spend less as well. Is this a realistic way to tackle consumerism? Who wants to take the tackle that?
4: Um, <laughs> okay, yes, I'm happy to. Um, yeah, reduced, work, reduced paid work time, I think, is a very important mechanism towards uh, degrowth and towards recomposing consumption in, more, in a more sane way. There are two basic routes. If you have less um, work time, everything else being equal, you have less money. So you have less money to spend. That's uh, an effective way of, of at least of re- reducing the increase in, in, in incomes and consumption. And the second argument is that um, if you have more time, you can uh, consume in a less uh, harmful way, you know, cooking your own meals and, and so forth. Repairing things, so there sh- could be a shift in the consumption. It seems that the first of these, the first mechanism, is more important than the second. Um, so, uh, yes, work is is, enjo- is enjoyable, and um, but there is there is, there are bad jobs, and there is overwork, and there is under underemployment uh, at the same time. So, um, I think that this is the most sane and reformist and gradualist way. Uh, If we compare Germany and America, about 1980 they had similar hours of work in the year. Since then the German hours have fallen about 20% and the American average hours have stayed the same. So you can see there are a different way of taking out productivity growth uh, and one is more sustainable than the other.
2: Rebecca. Yeah, just to kind of follow directly on that. you know, if we think also about the relationship between work and well-being, and, and people do like work, but they like work in part because it allows them to earn and they, can, they earn to consume. Um, and, and here I think that actually some, some work that's being developed by the Harvard sociologist Michelle Lamont is really interesting. She was here a few weeks ago at the LSE to give the British Journal of Sociology annual lecture, and she cited a lot of these data points about how miserable top income earners are and how inequality is making everyone unhappy. And she argues that we need in part a cultural shift um, that gives us multiple ways of understanding ourselves as meritorious and understanding others as worthy. So right now we really have one. We have uh, what Michelle Lamont calls having criteria. So our ideal self is based on what we can consume, what we have and what we can get. And if we have other scripts based on what she calls being criteria, then we can understand ourselves and others as meritorious in lots of different ways. So to connect that to this discussion, if we could de-link our sense of self-worth from consumption, then we'd work for different reasons. We, we, right now we work in order to earn, to consume people who work more. Buy more stuff and they throw away more stuff. They also live more carbon-intensive lifestyles, as Ian mentioned. And if we didn't care so much about consumption, if we were satisfied with having less overall, it wouldn't seem so galling to work less and to earn less. Um, And this frees up time to do things that we do know actually measurably improve our our sense of self-satisfaction and social satisfaction, which is to cultivate our social and familial relations to provide care to each other.
0: Rudy, do you think this is a realistic vision as we are surrounded by so many messages from the media telling us what we need to have in our lives to be a successful person?
3: Uh, I guess there's a a difference between uh, realistic and normative, uh, as in I think it should, but I am very pessimistic and cynical. Uh, so I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, right? Without significant, considerable structural reconfiguration, and I'm going to get accused of being a Marxist at some point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 but yeah, and I think sort of I follow what my colleague said that, in, uh, in addition to this massive structural reconfiguration that needs to, which probably sort of be, it would be in conjunction with this mentality of why we work in the first place, rather than working to buy you know, crap that we don't need, uh, to work for self-fulfillment and you know to. For, to, FOR CREATIVE POTENTIAL IS SORT OF IN LINE WITH uh, SELF-DETERMINATION THEORY. Right? IT'S REALLY CLASSIC, uh, KIND OF PSYCHOLOGICAL uh, uh, SCHOOL OF THOUGHT THAT WE HAVE PRETTY GOOD RESEARCH NOW ON WHAT MAKES PEOPLE HAPPY AND uh, WHAT LEADS TO WELL-BEING. AND IT IS THIS, this uh, uh, ENHANCEMENT of, OF WHAT'S CALLED sort of AUTONOMY, COMPETENCE AND RELATEDNESS, RIGHT? And WE CAN SORT OF MATCH THESE THINGS um, and, and, AND SET THE ORGANIZATIONAL KIND OF STRUCTURE SO THAT WE CAN CULTIVATE uh, THESE VALUES, THESE GOALS you do get happier general uh, people and more uh, harmonious sort of, uh, and safer communities. Uh, but it, it does, it will take considerable structural reconfiguration. Um, and people not working in what David Graver called bullshit jobs, right? Uh, or, you know, for evil corporations. Right? And whether that's going to happen anytime soon? No, probably not. I hope it does. but. <laughs> do we need
0: to ban keeping up with the Kardashians?
3: <laughs> now, I'm a believer in free speech, they should have it, but um, you know, but people uh, you probably need to introduce considerable media literacy.:
2: <laughs> It is happening though, so in the Netherlands has actually uh, legislated work reduction and work flexibility, and they've done that by delinking economic security through social programs from employment, basically. Um, and uh, Juliet Shore and Craig Thompson have also collected case studies from around the world, from Chicago, from the Ode region of France, from Lithuania, of people engaging in practices that they call plenitude. So um, working and spending less, connecting and creating more. Um, so across these different cases, there are groups of people who are organizing their lives a little bit differently to kind of try to break the reproduction of these, these work and consumption practices, and that has ecologically significant effects.
4: Well, I'm glad you mentioned that, because people often just refer to the French 35-hour uh, week, which actually wasn't as bad a, an experiment as it has often made out. But there are many other
3: ways of uh, shifting towards
4: uh, shorter working
3: hours. I, I, sorry, I, just, I, I would say that sort of the examples that they come up with I mean, that, those are give good evidence that these projects can work. Uh, that's what makes it all the more depressing that we're not implementing them on a wide scale. <laughs>
4: But on the other hand, <laughs> your opening remarks were a, a terrific eye-opener for me. I'm pretty depressing.
1: Mm. <laughs> so um, imagine this. What single policy would you introduce if you were Prime Minister for the day? And also, what single piece of advice would you give to our audience to reduce the impact of their consumption? Does anyone want to go first?
2: Um, Well, my policy will probably be to enact Ian Goff's policy, whatever that is, uh, (laughs) because he's the social policy expert. Um, But in terms of, you know, I I mean, I think the the big policy idea, and it's not a single policy, is to kind of further the transformation of the economy away from its excessive reliance on consumption, Mm -hmm. its dependence on fossil fuels. Recent industrial policy has taken steps in that direction. I read today, in fact, that UK renewable energy capacity surpassed fossil fuels for the first time. That's a good sign. Um, But in terms of kind of lower hanging fruit, we should just retrofit all UK housing to be more energy efficient. So as you know, because you live in housing here, uh, the UK has some of the least thermally efficient housing in Europe, which means that we also have really high rates of fuel poverty. And so what this underscores is that environmental policy shouldn't be thought of as somehow separate from social policy, as separate from economic policy. These are always linked issues. And then in terms of advice, you know, fly less, drive less, live in smaller homes that need less heat, eat local food, and a lot less meat. Um, The biggest impacts from our consumption come from transportation, from housing, and from food. But really, these aren't problems that can be solved by individual intention and mindfulness. These are structural, they're systemic. Uh, It's worth keeping in mind that 100 companies are responsible for 71% of our
1: global emissions. Anyone
4: else? Well, I agree with uh, that. That's a terrific list. (laughs) On retrofitting, I remember uh, George Monbiot saying once that one or two billion people in Britain would be as well off uh, living in tents (laughs) because of the the inefficiencies of of British housing, the worst British housing. Um, If I I would move on to structural, I'd make a couple of structural suggestions. Um, One is a maximum income. We're, we're, we're researching into that right now to see if we can reach a consensus amongst panels of citizens in Britain about what a maximum income is like, what is too much. Um, and the other is rationing of carbon. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of sort of radical policies here, which is difficult to do, but not difficult for uh, the basics of um, petrol, uh, gas, electricity, flights, and so forth. Those would be two... Radical st- structural way.
1: What do you think the maximum income should be?
4: Um, I've got an answer to that.
1: <laughs> We'd like to hear right. it. I think.
4: I think it should. I, well, we we we've done one calculation with people in Loughborough, and um, it comes to about one hundred and fifty thousand pounds a year, which is I think is in is plausible. It's the income of the Prime Minister, for example, and uh, and it's pretty high, <laughs> for for an individual income. Um, I think. To, to start thinking about that, which is what we're trying to do in these groups, is, is an important step forward. It's a big task, obviously.
1: And what would you advise the audience that they could do? To, what, what single thing?
4: Uh, avoid long distance flying.
1: Okay. Rudy, do you have any um, ideas about those two questions?
3: Um, I guess one sort of just a rough one, uh, if, you know, if I had choice, one, one big... Uh, maybe introduce um, kind of a psychology of happiness and well-being into the GCSE curriculum. Um, uh, Getting as particularly adolescents and as young as possible to understand, uh, obviously the the research behind it is quite complicated, but the basic concepts can be taught at a fairly young level Mm -hmm. to understand what pursuits, what goals, what values actually lead to sort of uh, make one happy and fulfilled and what doesn't. Um, uh, In addition to understanding how media can actually affect Both subliminally uh, and explicitly, uh, people's value orientations uh, and how to get them to be more critical of the things that they watch. Um, These types of, uh, uh, I guess, educational uh, curriculum I think might help to slowly, I I guess, uh, change some of the cultural orientations that they're otherwise uh, influenced by and and, you know um, peddled. (laughs) Uh, As for the individual ones. CURVE YOUR CONSUMPTIONS, BASIC, YOU KNOW, uh, FOR ALL THE THINGS THAT ARE WRONG WITH, YOU KNOW, THE ORGANIC AND THE FAIR TRADE STUFF, uh, IT'S STILL BETTER THAN THE ALTERNATIVE. AND, YOU KNOW, WE HAVE THE INTERNET NOW SO WE CAN ACTUALLY CHECK WHETHER OR NOT THESE COMPANIES ARE ACTUALLY ABIDING BY, YOU KNOW, BY THESE LABELS. Um, BUT REALLY, uh, it, 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 HONESTLY, THAT'S PROBABLY NOT, not GOING TO DO MUCH. YOU should JUST DO THAT BECAUSE IT'S THE RIGHT THING TO DO AND THAT'S THE ONLY REASON ANYONE SHOULD NEED. <laughs> um, IT WILL TAKE MASSIVE PUBLIC MOBILIZATION, GOVERNMENTAL ACTION, uh, massive uh, investment in uh, green infrastructure, uh, and that's going to take not just voting, but you know, really long-term public mobilization, protests, probably.
0: Thank you. Finally, turning to our original question, consumption-driven economies have, for many, delivered wealth and luxury unknown to previous generations. This has come at a cost environmentally and socially. Is there any other way? Can we afford our consumer society? Rudy?
3: Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, the IPCC says we have, what, about 12 years left? Hopefully by then I'll be dead or Norway. <laughs> and I won't have to worry about the apocalypse anymore, That's fine.
2: <laughs> uh, also no, um, but we might not want to hold on to it anyways. It might be a sacrifice of something that we didn't really need to have to begin with.
4: Uh, so, can we afford? Uh, no, because it's not, it's, not, it's not, not only is it not sustainable, it's not generalizable mm-hmm. to eight or seven and a half billion people in the world. That's a pretty important consideration.
0: Thank you. <coughs> now we're going to open the floor up to questions. Please do ask a question rather than making a statement. <laughs> If you could say your name and where you're from, if you're happy to do that. And please do wait until we can get a microphone to you. Yeah, please go ahead.
1: My name is Henrietta Lynch. I'm currently working um, for, uh, for volunteering for a food bank, Um, but I'm unemployed. Um, Question is, okay, we all say no to uh, consumer society, and I completely and utterly agree with you. I won't make any statements about that. But the question is, we seem so far removed. If you walk down like Oxford Street and you look at the normal average consumer, okay, it's one of the world consumption streets. How how are we communicating? There seems to be a fundamental disconnect in understanding between what exactly the levels of consumption we need to get to and how, how we're gonna get there. And our current governments, certainly in Britain, don't necessarily seem to be helping. How, how do we address that?
0: Okay, so how do we better communicate the idea that our society is not sustainable?
4: In consumption terms? Well, I mean, a, tra- a traffic, light s- you know, traffic light system would be pretty useful uh, in terms of the sustainability of, of, of thousands of goods in supermarkets and so forth. We need something straightforward which uh, can, can give people information um, to guide them. I think that would be one very useful.
0: So it's the sense of urgency that you feel is lacking. Yeah. Somewhat.
4: <laughs> well, if, if we look at, if we look at the, the one great example of altering uh, consumer behaviour, which is uh, smoking, um, there you had everything sort of thrown at smoking. You had very high taxes, you had regulation, you had shaming and um, what else? other things too, and banning. Um, and um, I think that demonstrates the sort of thing which is necessary and I, I was struck by uh, Hancock talking about how to deal with obesity and so I just said people should pull themselves together and behave better. Uh, that's not enough. It, but the, the lesson of smoking is that there are a set of measures that you can take, that governments can take.
2: Does Anybody else want to comment on that? Yeah, I also think that part of the problem with the messaging is about who's being targeted with the ask so I actually think that making more of this point that Ian raised that this is largely a problem of extreme affluence that there there's a relationship between incomes and consumption and emissions and I think, you know, when the, when the messaging is so general as to suggest that, well, everyone's the problem, everyone's not the problem to quite the same extent. And, and I think that people are willing to make sacrifices if it feels like everyone's doing their fair share. And what that means is that the consumption that's kind of out of control on, on one end of the spectrum really needs to come down much more dramatically than the consumption of, of people who are really just trying to eke out a living day to day, um, who might have aspirations to shop on Oxford Street, but those aspirations aren't actually what's driving a lot of the problems that we're worried about.
0: Rudy, do you have anything to add to that in particular?
3: No, I think it's a great question. Um, uh, uh, and, and honestly, we, we're, we're, we're kind of stuck. I mean, like the, you know, the IPCC comes out, you know, with a report all the time and it can't get any more and more you know, apocalyptic and people are still saying, yeah, whatever, so, you know, we're, we're still going to continue. So it's a fantastic question. Uh, and we know from cognitive science that uh, human beings, uh, we, we're not very good at estimating risks long term. Um, we cannot just keep putting it off, uh, and so it's going to take something considerable to bypass that natural cognitive bias to put off, uh, you know, detrimental effects um, and, and start thinking how that, you know, to address them now. And I wish I had the answer for that.
0: Doesn't sound like we're going to solve it does <laughs> it? No, okay. <laughs> um, someone had the microphone here? Yes, thank you.
5: Hi, my name is Matt Reynolds. I'm a student here at the LSE. Um, my question is, um, with infinite growth being unsustainable, um, what do we use instead of GDP? As in, how do we measure a nation's ability to reduce, reuse, and recycle? What kind of positive measures are there to allow nations to track themselves against those targets?
4: Well, there's basically two alternatives. You modify GDP. You subtract the costs of uh, of environmental damage and so forth, uh, you, uh, <coughs> so, so you, it's a much more net measure of what's happening. Uh, and the other then is that you switch completely to to non monetary measures of well being um, and uh, start to track those. And I think we need to do that. The trouble is you get too many measures. It gets people do like a, sing, a single or simple measure. Um, we haven't really devised that yet, but I would ask you that, that need satisfaction can provide that sort of measure.
2: I think it's also you know, interesting to think about this idea of growth and how it seems like this, you know, this infallible core principle of economics, but economic history shows us that it's actually a pretty recent invention, this idea that you know, growth above all else um, really only kind of entered mainstream economics, hmm. I think, in the 1960s. Um, And really as a way to kind of justify or explain uh, globalization and financialization and, you know, and all that goes with that. Um, So I think that it it is actually possible to unthink growth and think along some of these alternative metrics. Yeah, just that there. Okay. Yeah.
5: Thank you. Uh, My name is Sanjay and I work in the public sector. Some of the concepts that you've identified, such as degrowth, um, that when you want to popularize this idea across the masses, across government, across public policy, those aren't words that any politician will ever put forward in the public sphere if they want to be re-elected at any election in the near future. Um, If technology is the problem, can we use technology to find solution to the environmental problems that we've caused? Um, There are some things that we do need to change in terms of how how we consume plastics, so on and so forth. Um, Surely we've gone past the tipping point uh, and we need to use technology to clean the air and some of the other issues and problems that we are facing. Because there are much of the world that want to have similar types of consumption as this part of the world. Um, So how do we, we shouldn't really stomp on their sort of aspirations as such. Just because we've had it and we've messed the world up doesn't mean Mm -hmm. that they don't want to also have it but not mess the world up, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense.
0: So, can technology allow people in developing countries to have the things that we have
4: w- uh, without costs? Sorry, <laughs> costs. <laughs> um, no, I mean it, it can't. It, it, the, the maths don't add up. I mean the sums don't add up. So that uh, you, you have to do something more than than green growth. But degrowth, I agree with you entirely. is a complete turn-off. I mean uh, it's just <laughs> Uh, I've pondered for ages, how on earth can you get this even... under growth <laughs> Post-growth. Yeah, <laughs> post-growth. Uh, some talk about a-growth, <laughs> which is um, indifference to growth. You do what needs to be done, and then perhaps it'll grow, perhaps it won't, but it doesn't really matter. Um, there are those sorts of alternatives. Um, but that is the, is the $64,000 question, if that's not a contradiction in <laughs> terms. And... Um, so, that's the reason in my book I argue for an intermediate stage of recomposing consumption where you don't actually question the total level of consumption, but you say let's recompose it in, in lower carbon terms. Let's see how far that gets us uh, before we start talking about, my favorite term would be post-growth. There's also the argument that we are actually sliding towards a, a, a zero growth world. I mean, there's no question that productivity is diminishing across the, uh, right across the world. And um, I, I, I'm not at all convinced that uh, we won't be s- sliding towards zero or low growth anyway.
0: Yes. Uh, hi. Thank you. Uh, my name is Justin Barteri, and I'm part of an incubator called Zinc that fostered the creation of social impact uh, businesses. And um, my question, building on what you said, uh, Rebecca, you said that basically climate change um, is everyone's problem, but at the same time, it's no one's problem, and, um, and that Consumers and people have a role to play. Um, I, I was wondering if um, the panel could comment of the ethical consumption gap, which is where people say they want to behave and act and shop according to a certain set of values. Um, but actually, in real term, um, they don't. Um, so is there an opportunity there to close that gap? And, and what do you think? Is it too small? Uh, is it worth exploring? OK, so is there an opportunity to close uh, the gap between what people say they're going to do and then what people actually do? Rebecca, would you like to start?
2: Sure. Um, well, from the perspective of the kind of ecological significance of consumption, I'm less worried about that gap because most of the, the, mo- the most impactful consumption we do happens through how we travel, what we live in, and what we eat. Um, And a lot of that is routine. It's habitual. We don't necessarily exercise a whole lot of choice over it. Uh, You know, we certainly get locked into certain kinds of commutes. We have to rely on certain forms of transit. Um, We live where we can afford to live. Uh, We don't always have control over the condition of that housing. You know, certainly if you're a renter on the, the private market here in London, that's not the case. So, You know, so in all of these ways, if we're really interested in moving the needle on the ecological significance of our consumption, the the levers aren't really by getting consumers to behave in the ways that they say they want to behave. Um, And, you know, the the other thing that I think the focus on ethical consumption does, is it, it identifies the household as this site, this problem site that needs discipline. And you know, in, related, in relation to the, the findings of my own research, right, identifying the household makes it the problem of women who tend to be the, the consumers uh, making consumption decisions for the household. Um, you know, it, I think it privatizes the problem in certain ways. It makes the behavior of women the object of scrutiny in a way that isn't actually in proportion to, to some of these bigger, more ecologically significant forms of consumption.
3: Rudy? What possibly might help is getting people to be more aware of the negative externalities of the things that they consume. Just like with smoking, you know, you have the the packaging right in your face, you know, with the person with the bad teeth, right? Um, Maybe uh, some kind of constant reminder of you know your clothes are made by children sweatshops. You know um, your burger should really cost about fifty quid. <laughs> um, uh, it, it, it really necessitates people constantly be reminded of all of the you know sort of the negative detrimental effects that their consumption can lead to because that obviously does not get shown. Um, and uh, I'm saying it's going to work all the time, but it certainly doesn't get promoted enough. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. constantly reminding people of that might help to steer that needle.
4: Well, here's another idea. I mean, it follows from your your opening remarks, Rudy, again, which I keep pondering on, these images which foster self-interest and undermine empathy and uh, commonality. Um, Just start controlling those. I mean, controlling advertising has been discussed, especially to children, um, would be an obvious way to start. And Professor Layard here at the LSE has argued that from a slightly different perspective for a long time now. So... um, we should start doing that. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
0: yeah. Any more questions? Uh, the person at the back in the white shirt and then the person in the, um, the blue shirt just behind. Yeah, just with the, wa- the white scarf on, yeah. So, yes, please go.
1: Oh, hi, uh, my name is Leo. I'm from a department store in London, so I work there, but I also research some uh, social field initiatives My question is, how can we start um, taking action within these institutions to reduce consumerism, but they live by selling things all the time, and they generate loads of jobs, like my uh, institution generates about 6,000 jobs in London. Um, Yeah, which type of actions would we start taking to help the environment? I know um, the jobs are not justified by... uh, resource expands but then uh, which type of actions can we start taking that could make world a better place to live and considering these institutions has been here for years and years and they generate a lot of
5: jobs as well?
4: Well I've already mentioned the notion of traffic lights um, and signalling um, and um, uh, I think carbon labelling would be very useful. Uh, Tesco uh, looked at this about 10 years ago and they were they were going to do it about 50,000 commodities, they were going to have a a clear carbon labelling so that people would at least be informed. But they just decided that was too difficult to do, or they couldn't do it by themselves. So so that would be one concrete way, I think, in which department stores could move.
0: Yes, please. Hi, my name is Chisachi Naiga. I'm actually from America. I'm studying here um, in central London. And I just wanted to... Ask based on a comment that was made earlier about reaching a consensus, a consensus of a maximum income, I'm kind of just curious as to what do you think, or what would you predict the people's reaction to that? How would that go about to those who already make that consensus and more, and how would the lower income and um, middle class, how would they reach up to that, basically? Okay, So how do you think a maximum income would be received well, both by those already at it, um, and uh, some uh, of us who are nowhere near it.
4: Ask me in next Easter, because then we will have done these pilot pro- projects with uh, six, or is it, nine, uh, citizen groups in, in, in London. And um, one uh, lower income, three lower income groups, three higher income groups, and three mixed groups to see if we can get any consensus at all. We have no idea whether this is possible. We have got consensus on necessities. There's a lot of research on that, people. uh, But whether we can get, we're going to look at necessities, then we're going to say, what what do you need to have a comfortable life? Uh, You know, comfort. Or prosperity, if you like, even. And then what are luxuries, which are um, not necessary for, for, um, for various reasons. But I haven't a clue what the results are going to be (laughs) yet.
0: Okay. Yes, the person with the glasses on this there. Thank you. Um, I'm Chloe Dobbs, and my question is, will reducing our consumption hinder the ability of LEDCs to develop and lift their people out of poverty as a consequence of us buying less of their exports? So, LEDCs developing countries? So, how will reducing our consumption affect the developing world?
4: Um, Well, you're you're right. Our argument, I think, here has been that we have to reduce our consumption in order to give some carbon space to the developing world to actually grow uh, and do lots of material stuff, which does need to to be done. but uh, that, that growth can be uh, internally generated. I, I don't think it's necessary to envisage us having to consume more and more stuff we don't really need in order to keep them going, because it's, it's doubly harmful, that is. Um,
2: you know, export-led development itself has kind of a mixed record for those countries. It not
3: particularly work very well. Eh? <laughs> Conversely, there's import substitution, which you know, helped a lot during the 1960s and 70s you know Central and Latin America and other places. So they can replace that with you know, internal economic models.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, any other questions? i um, the individual there in the purple shirt, and after this person here with the black hoodie on, please. Go ahead. Um, you mentioned an uh, income of no more than 150,000 a year, something like that. However, I don't know if anybody's read Treasure Islands or any of these books on how the wealthy increase their wealth and there's no way that that would control anything because you have offshore investments that aren't being dealt with and there are trillions going out. I mean, it's just ridiculous to think it's income. I know governments tell you it's income, but it isn't. So, I wonder how we would address that and offshore tax havens. I mean, it's, it's scandalous. It would pay for all the problems in the third world if we could get a hold of that money. Is a maximum income really realistic? Won't the wealthy just find a different way to game the system?
4: <clears throat> well, I, I agree. Um, wealth is, is more important than income. So what I suggested was a bit simplistic. But I, um, you've got to start somewhere. But we could talk about um, public ownership of, and common ownership of land and other important natural assets. That That was, is an important route to go. And it doesn't necessarily involve nationalization and state ownership. The commoning movement, um, it, I think, is very important here about uh, people um, trying to get back, as the um, Scottish island of Eggett has done. It, it owns its own land now and I think is developing a completely self-contained electricity generating system so these examples are, are encouraging uh, but th- that's ta- tackling wealth ownership you're quite right yes
0: please go ahead
1: hi um, my name is zane i'm a student here in london and i just have a question in order to best mitigate the effects of climate change do you think that emphasis should be placed on the individual consumer and the actions that he or she takes or do you think that there should be Increased pressure on political parties to consider the environment and the environmental impacts when creating their manifestos and policies? And if so, how, how do you think this pressure can be applied?
0: Okay, so should we exert pressure on individuals in terms of um, reducing their greenhouse gas emissions or should the pressure be put on uh, government and how should that be done?
3: Uh, the latter, I think we'll agree. Um, and that generally just takes, again, Popular mobilization. So, in the U.S., for example, people forget that the president who instituted the Environmental Protection Agency was Richard Nixon, right? And he didn't do that out of the goodness of his heart. That was just a massive popular mobilization from the environmental movement that, you know, got, uh, uh, you know, pretty, uh, uh, you know, conservative uh, Republican president to institute um, possibly the, you know, uh, at least at that point one of the best, you know, environmental protection uh, uh, mechanisms available. Um, um, there's no no reason why we can't have that here in the U.K. or in other countries.
2: Uh, I would agree. I mean, I don't think it's an either or, but I'm a sociologist, so I'm always going to lean towards the structural and the collective <laughs> over uh, a focus on the individual. Um, but I, so in part, I think it's a problem, it's a, it's a political problem. It's a problem of political articulation and mobilization. But I think it's also a problem of kind of material culture. Um, so. Elizabeth Shove has done work on showering, right? And this, the, the practice of showering is a you know, water intensive consumption practice. It's not something that we used to do every day or multiple times a day. And she's making the point that these consumption practices that become habitual are the products of kind of institutional change, of cultural change. Um, and you know, we now have a notion of an appropriately showered body Right. Um, and so, so the, the, there are these kind of bigger kind of social and, and cultural questions that frame some of these issues that I think are also interesting places to look for how things might change. Mm-hmm.
4: Gentleman
0: at the back with the green shirt
5: on. Hi, how are you? Um, thank you for speaking to us today. My name is Ariel. I'm a student here at LSE. Um, and my question is, um, is there a risk in promoting these small scale green consumption activities that we're creating sort of a moral licensing to to sort of say you know i'm doing my part i'm playing my role and then we don't end up focusing on the bigger picture things and if so how can we both promote the small scale fixes and also keep our minds focused on the long-term larger scale fixes
0: okay so are the small scale fixes hiding what needs to be done on the bigger scale?
2: So I think actually the empirical evidence is mixed about the relationship between kind of green consumption behavior and other forms of what we might recognize as kind of proper environmental politics. Uh, You know, there's some evidence that consumption is sort of the gateway drug to political activation (laughs) around these issues, Uh, and then there's other evidence that suggests that people are kind of content to buy green and stop there. Uh, Survey data from the U.S. at least has shown that a much higher percentage of people say, yeah, I'll buy green than will say, I vote on the basis of environmental policy or I go to environmental protests or I even sign an environmental petition. Um, And I think the risk there is that if green consumption starts to kind of crowd out space in our collective imagination about what environmentalism is, and it's also incidentally something that appeals to the relatively elite, right? It makes environmentalism the, the purview of a very kind of small group of people. And it commodifies that environmentalism and sort of reduces it to the freedom to choose between products, right? And I think in, in that way, it kind of impoverishes uh, what we might want of our environmental politics.
3: Yeah, uh, there's this phenomenon, there's kind of increasing research on it, it's called moral balancing. Uh, where people will do something like sign a petition and that'll give them license to be like a dick in other areas, basically. <laughs> right. um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a possibility <laughs> that, that encouraging this individual consumption will, uh, which is good, but yeah, it might sort of make people feel that, okay, I did my part. I don't have to, you know, then go on and do the harder work of, you know, of changing society at the structural level. Um, but how to get around that, uh, who knows, but we have to. And we have to do both.
4: No, I haven't. uh, I thought Rebecca's points were very, very interesting. Um, But there is a big increase in veganism, as I understand it, in Britain today. So that's interesting. I mean, that's a big shift. Uh, So these things can happen. We shouldn't be too pessimistic.